Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in chapter 15. We are starting at verse 9. As we've been going through the Proverbs, we have repeatedly seen Solomon speak of those who, because of their ignorance, because of their lack of love for righteousness, uh, he refers to them as scoffers. And to this very day, we still deal with scoffers. The word means a cynic, somebody who's always arguing, somebody who won't sit down and listen. And to the cynics of the world, to the atheists of the world, when they think about the Bible, they think of the Bible as a bunch of Jewish mythology, and uh, there might be some miracles thrown around, a bunch of stuff that they can reject. And because they feel completely sufficient within themselves, they reject the idea of a book that would tell them how to be, how to behave, what to believe, that they will decide for themselves what they want to believe. But if we've seen anything from the book of Proverbs so far, we have seen that the advice we're getting is just really good advice. It doesn't matter if you were a Christian, a believer, a non-believer, if you followed the rules of what we've been seeing in Proverbs so far, you would see that it is just beneficial to a person to seek after knowledge, to seek after righteousness, to be fair to other people, to be honest in your dealings, to be honest in your business, not to be a false witness, not to lie against your neighbor. That's going to come back on you. Not to constantly be manipulating circumstances in such a way that they benefit you to the harm of somebody else. Those are just really good rules to live by regardless of who you are. If you're going to be in any kind of civilized society, if you're going to be a group of people who don't hurt and harm each other, then the advice we've been seeing here is perfectly good advice. And yet, the scoffers, the cynics, the atheists continue to resist this information. And Solomon tells us that the reason they keep scoffing and keep resisting is because their hearts are evil. Because they have evil in their heart, they're not able to chase after the things that are righteousness, the things that are pure, the things that are true, being fair, being just, being a good neighbor, being good in your business is just not something they're capable of doing because of the evil that is in their heart. And as a result, the things that they say, the things that they do continue to demonstrate what is really in their heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But beyond that, because of their wicked hearts, they also act a certain way. So we left off last week at verse 8, which we're going to look at tonight because there's a series of things here that Solomon says are an abomination to the Lord. And the first of them in verse 8 is that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. We talked about that last week under the heading of God resisting people who, even though they are doing the religious stuff, 
I mean, sacrificing to God was a requirement of the law. If you were an Israelite, you were required to go up to the temple and you were required to take sacrifices. You were required to kill animals. You were required to give your tithes in support of the temple and the priesthood, the widows, the orphans, the fatherless. You were required to do all that. But here, because their hearts are wicked, the very fact that they do the stuff that they're required to do does not buy them any goodwill from God. The doing of the religious stuff is an abomination to God because in their hearts they are resisting God. They are scoffing against God. They are wicked in their hearts. The contrast that Solomon puts in front of us is, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. And when we finished last week, I said, wouldn't you love to be a delight to God? Well, go pray to him. I mean, your father has made prayer available. He expects to hear from you. He has given you the authority to pray to him through Jesus Christ. In the name of Christ, you can come running to the throne of grace, crying, Abba, Father. That is just a remarkable and significant benefit that he has given all of us. And I don't think we take enough advantage of the fact that God has allowed us to do that. So prayer to God from the upright which means their heart is right with God, their behavior is right before God. The prayer of the upright is a delight to God. Well, then verse 9 says that not only is the sacrifice of the wicked an abomination, the way of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh. So the very actions of their life, the way they conduct themselves, the way they walk through this life, the way that they behave themselves, because they are wicked, everything they do is therefore counted before God as wicked, and therefore they, just in living, just in the things they do, are an abomination to God. So if their way is an abomination to God, if the way they walk, the way they think, the way they act is an abomination to God, you can see why when they come to the temple with their sacrifice, that the sacrifice is an abomination to God. Because everything they do is an abomination to God. Because their wickedness is an abomination to God. But then the same way that Solomon told us that the prayer of the upright is his delight... In the second half of verse 9, he tells us that God loves him who pursues righteousness. That's the way they walk. The wicked walk in their wickedness. They conspire in order to do evil, to do harm to other people. That's the way that they conduct their lives. But by way of contrast, there are people who in their life, the way they walk, the way they talk, the things they love, they are pursuing righteousness. And God loves them. This is one of the few places in the Bible where you see God eulogize a certain kind of person. In the New Testament, we read, God loves a hilarious giver. That tells us the kind of person God loves. That he loves cheerful giving. Okay, well, that's someplace in the New Testament where God eulogizes a certain kind of person. Here it is in the Old Testament. God loves him who pursues righteousness. 
Now, the very fact that he said you have to pursue righteousness means that you can't just sit at home and wait for righteousness to come find you. You have to actively go pursue righteousness. But if your life, if your way, if the proclivity of the way you conduct your life is that you are chasing after those things that are righteous, those things that are godly, then God loves you, and that is the demonstration of what genuine wisdom is, because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Look for just a moment over at verse 26, as long as we're talking about things that are an abomination to God. Evil plans are an abomination before God. Okay, so now it's the way of evil people, the sacrifice of evil people, and the plans, the things they plan to do in the future are an abomination before God. Why? Because they're evil. The person is evil. Their heart is evil. Their intentions are evil. Their sacrifices are evil. The way they walk, the way they live their life is evil. The things they plan to do, those are all evil. But in contrast, in verse 26, we read, but pleasant words are pure. The term pleasant words there means the same thing we've been reading early in this verse. A gentle answer turns away wrath. It means a well-thought-out response, speaking to somebody with words that are going to benefit them, that are going to encourage them. Those kind of words are pleasant words, and then Solomon uses a word, here translated pure, that's actually a word from metallurgy. It means a kind of metal that doesn't have any kind of dross in it or doesn't have any impure metals in it. Once silver or gold has been purified, that's the word that Solomon is using here. Pleasant words are pure. In other words, they stand in contrast to evil words, to evil plans. Evil plans come from evil people. People who are pursuing righteousness make sure that their words, that their behavior, that their conduct in life is pure because they're chasing after those things that are righteous. So then go back to verse 11. We looked at this last week. It says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. That is death and destruction, basically. And if death and destruction, if hell, if the belly of the earth, if everything that lays before people after they die, if that's all open and available to the Lord, Solomon says, well, then how much more the heart of people? If God can see all the way into the darkest places of the universe, the places of death and destruction, if he knows what's going on and has sovereign control over those domains, how much more does he know what's going on in your silly little heart, in your brain, in your intentions, in what you desire? And that means that the evil man, the scoffer, the person who thinks he's getting away with it, isn't actually getting away with anything because the God who sees all, who knows all, the God we described last week as omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent, that omni-God sees everything, sees the things that are going on 
in the furthest reaches of the outer darkness. He knows what's going on in the death and destruction of Sheol itself, and it's all open and available to him. And if that is true, then how much more does he know the intentions of the heart of human beings? And when people are pursuing righteousness, he knows that. Look, he knows if the proclivity of your life, if the bent of your life, if the purpose of your life is toward righteousness, toward godly things, he knows that. And that means if occasionally you mess up, like all the time, that means occasionally if things go wrong, all the time, that means that even if you stumble, even if you miss the mark, even if you transgress, still he knows the intention of your heart is toward him, toward godliness. Therefore, he's still going to hear the prayers. He's still going to respond and love those people. But by contrast, he knows if your heart is wicked. And even if you're doing the religious stuff, even if you're bringing the sacrifices, even if you're going to temple, even if you're doing that, but your heart is dark, your heart is wicked, Mm -hmm. then your way and your sacrifice and the things you do and your plans are all an abomination before God. Because he knows what's really going on inside you. I mean, he knows what's going on in Sheol and Abaddon. Well, then he knows what's going on inside the heart of men. So verse 12 then talks about this scoffer, this cynic that I've been talking about. A scoffer does not love one who reproves him. Boy, is that the truth. A cynic, an atheist, somebody who scoffs at the Bible, he doesn't love the person who reproves him. He hates the person who corrects him. He'll argue with the person who corrects him. He'll argue on the basis of his own self-sufficiency, and I already know what I need to know, and you can't tell me anything. And and heaven forbid, uh, or heaven help you, if that conversation happens to be online where people can hide behind keyboards and say all kinds of vile things, well, then the scoffer is not going to love the one who corrects him, who reproves him. And then in a parallel statement, he says, that scoffer will not go to the wise person. So the scoffer, that's why I keep saying he's self-sufficient, He figures he knows everything he needs to know. And he's not going to go to somebody who's actually wise. Because as we keep reading in Solomon's writing, the beginning of wisdom is the very fear of the Lord. To go to somebody who's wise is to go to somebody who's seeking after righteousness, who's seeking after godly things. And if they are a scoffer, if they are a cynic, if they are an atheist, they're not going to love somebody who's correcting them toward godly things. They're going to reject those kind of people, and they're not going to go chase after those people. They're not going to search them out. They're not going to look for them. They're going to avoid them at all costs. Solomon said that was true in his day. Uh, We see it just as true today. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody about the things of God, the things of Christ, the things of the Bible, and they just not only don't get it, but they do just like Jesus said. They, they trample your pearls, and then they turn and cut you. It happens to all of us because the world that doesn't know God is going to hate Christ without a cause, and Christ said, therefore, they're going to hate you without a cause. You go be his representative, they're going to hate you. So what Solomon has said here was true 3,000 years ago. It's still true today. 
Here's another place where, just like I was saying in my introduction, this is another place where this is just true regardless. This is something taken out of the Bible that's been around the wisdom of God expressed through Solomon and is still true today. There are people who are wise, who are seeking after righteousness, who are pursuing the things of God, and there are people who are scoffers, who are cynics, who are atheists, who are fools, who are evil, and God rejects those people, and because they've been rejected by God, they also are going to reject you. They're also going to hate you. They're also going to make sure they don't seek you, they don't listen to you. A scoffer does not love one who corrects him. He will not go to the wise. Verse 13 says, A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. This is just an observation on Solomon's part, and I kind of like this observation. What he's saying is, if you're okay in your heart, if your attitude in your heart is at rest, is at peace before God, if you have joy, if you have that joy that passes understanding, if you have purpose in your life, if you have wisdom, understanding in this lifetime, then you're going to have a joyful heart And guess what? It's going to show. If you have peace, if you have joy, if you have the knowledge that God is for you and who can be against you, if you know that when you leave this world, you know what your eternal home is and you're secure in that, then you have joy, you have peace, you have cheerfulness in your heart that the world just simply can't understand. It's going to get out on you. It's going to show on your face. I get frustrated by sour Christians. I don't understand how somebody can say, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Christ, I know my eternal home, and I'm upset about it. I I don't get that. It seems to me like if you understood anything about what the Bible says about your eternal redemption and what God has done for you and what Christ has done for you, that ought to make you cheerful all the time. I wrote to somebody the other day. I was having a conversation actually online. And he said, how are you doing? And I answered the way I always do. I said, uh, I'm pretty good for an old guy. And he said, so, you know, what's going on? I said, well, I'm, oh, he asked about Janine and how she was doing. And I said, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. She's doing pretty well under the circumstances. And he wrote back and said, well, what are you doing under there? <laughs> your circumstances don't determine your attitude. If you have a cheerful heart... Well, that's going to carry you through this life. By contrast, Solomon says, when the heart is sad, well, then the spirit, the countenance, the outward person is going to be broken. That's true. When the heart is sad, when you're going through incredible difficulties, when you're going through pain, when you're going through sorrow, that's going to show on your face as well. But Solomon didn't just say, that a joyful heart is going to affect your face, he later is going to say that your face affects your heart. Mm-hmm. So remember a moment ago I said, you know, happiness is a choice, and we went around and around about that. Sometimes knowing who you are, walking confidently through this life, recognizing that you shouldn't be under the circumstances, 
recognizing that God is for you and who can be against you, that then becomes the inspiration for how you approach the difficulties, the trials of this life. And that does end up giving you cheer, confidence, a sense of well-being in your heart. Here's the way that Solomon put it. Take a look at verse 30 for a moment. Bright eyes, says the NASB, bright eyes gladden the heart. That term, bright eyes, has to do with how you widen your eyes when you're excited. Have you ever watched a little kid? I I remember going to Disneyland one time with my little nephew. And I think Dustin was maybe six at the time. And we took him to the Tiki Room. Tiki, 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 Tiki Room. Okay, everybody sing along. And he was standing on the chair next to me. And I was getting to see Disneyland through his eyes, right? And he was okay with the singing birds, and he was okay with everything else going on. But then at the end of the show, the tiki statues in the corners start moving and singing and clapping and everything else. His eyes got like pie pans. (laughs) And he turned to me and exclaimed, Uncle Jim! I mean, he just couldn't take in the wonder of it all. Okay, at that moment, he had bright eyes. That's what that word means. That's why I told you that whole story. Also because I like my nephew. That's what it is to have bright eyes. To hear something or to encounter something, to experience something where your face lights up. And when your face lights up and you have those kind of bright eyes, that gladdens the heart. And when your heart is glad, it's going to show. A cheerful heart makes a cheerful face. And then the second half of verse 30 says, good news. This is a parallel statement to bright eyes gladdening the heart. Good news puts fat on the bones. In other words, it just makes you feel good. Makes you feel healthy. Good news. And when you get good news, your face brightens up. Your eyes brighten up. So Solomon kind of creates a two-way street here. He says, a joyful heart makes a cheerful face. But in verse 30, he says, bright eyes, a cheerful face, gladdens the heart. So sometimes your heart is made glad externally because you've heard good news or you've experienced something or the tiki statues are singing. Something happens that just cheers up your heart. But if you go through your life with that sense of well-being and cheer in your heart, it's going to give you a cheerful face. But when the heart is sad, that's also going to show in your countenance, in your sadness. Verse 14 says, The mind, the thinking of the intelligent, seeks knowledge. Very much like what we just read, that God loves those people who pursue righteousness. The mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge. If you are intelligent, if you are seeking wisdom, if you do care about God and his universe and how things work, then you're going to be in that constant pursuit of knowledge, that constant understanding of his word, that constant Pouring over his word to see what else you can glean out of it. 
I keep saying that nobody is an expert on the Bible. If anybody claims expertise on the Bible, one of two things is true. Either they're lying or the Bible is not the word of God. Because if it is the very word of God, no human being could ever achieve expertise on it. Nobody has exhaustive knowledge of what's in the Bible. Have you ever had the experience where you've gone back and read a passage that you've read many times before? And while you're reading it, suddenly this time, it really speaks to you. This time, you see things in it that you just never realized before. and comes alive for you at that moment. And the word of God becomes sharper than any two-edged sword. And, and it's just really astounding when you think, I have read that so many times. Why did this never jump out to me before? Well, if that's the way that you approach God, his universe, his wisdom, his knowledge, then you're in that constant pursuit. The mind of the intelligent is constantly seeking knowledge, pursuing knowledge, looking after, pursuing the righteousness that only comes through the knowledge of God. But the mouth of fools feeds on folly. We mentioned that verse last week, and I told you that that word feeds there means grazes. It's a word that's used for cattle out grazing on grass. So Solomon is saying that fools use their mouth to graze on foolishness. Just all day long, rather than pursuing knowledge, rather than pursuing righteousness, they're out there absorbing every silly thing they can find. They're grazing on folly. Now, a moment ago, we were looking at verse 13, and I just want to remind you of verse 13 because verses 15 through 17 kind of pick up the same theme, and these various different parables don't run thematically, don't run contextually, and I try to make connections between the different parable or the different proverbs just so that you can understand Solomon's bigger thinking on any topic, but verse 13 says that when the heart is sad, the spirit becomes also sad. The countenance is broken. All the days, says verse 15, all the days of the afflicted are bad. And so he's admitting that it is difficult when you're going through affliction. Whether you're going through sickness, whether you're going through poverty, you're going through hunger, the loss of a loved one, there are many different afflictions that we might go through in this lifetime. But a cheerful heart, remember what he just said, a joyful heart makes a cheerful face. A cheerful heart has a continual feast. The idea of feast in the Old Testament was a time of joy, was a time of getting together with other people and and feasting and making your heart merry. So if you are going through tough circumstances... If you're going through difficulty and afflictions in this life, if your circumstances are bad, Solomon admits, yeah, that's hard to go through. That is a difficulty that he defines as just bad, just difficult, just hard. But those circumstances don't have to define what's going on in your heart. Your heart still can have the cheer, can have the confidence, can have the knowledge can have the joy despite your circumstances. Uh, Many, many times I have told you that the best definition of faith that I have ever heard 
is that faith is standing on the word of God and counting the word of God as more true than your circumstances. And the word of God says wonderful things about you, wonderful things about what life here is as a training ground for eternity and what we have to look forward to and the grace of God that is going to make us persevere despite the circumstances and the goodness of God that's going to take us to our eternal home and that Jesus went before us and said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may also be. If you know those kinds of promises, then whatever the circumstances of this life are, even though they're bad, as he says, As Solomon declares, even though there are difficult afflictions that you go through and the days of the afflicted can be bad, still a cheerful heart will get you through those. It's like a constant feast. It's a continual joy. It's a continual well-being. Verse 16 says, Better is little with the fear of the Lord Okay, so what is the fear of the Lord? It's the beginning of wisdom. So he's talking about wise people, people who have the fear of the Lord, but they only have in this lifetime, they only have acquired very little. And because they have very little, yeah, they're going to go through difficulty, going to go through affliction in this life. But it is better to have little in this life and have the fear of the Lord than it is to have a great treasure and no fear of the Lord. Constant turmoil in this life. Evil and trouble and God sees everything you do and your sacrifices and your ways and your plans. He sees that all as abominations. Then what does it matter if you're the one who dies with the most stuff? If you've accumulated lots of stuff Stuff in this life. The things that the world thinks buy happiness. You're better off to have very little in this life if you at least have the fear of the Lord. That is better than to have incredible wealth and great treasure but not know God. And leave this planet having left behind nothing but turmoil, trouble, the struggles of this life. So wealth... The accumulation of wealth is not the determining factor either in contentment or happiness or in your eternity. The stuff of this life, the stuff of this world, if you have all of that but you also just have turmoil all the time and then you have the judgment of God ahead of that, then what does it matter that you had all that stuff? A cheerful heart is a continual feast. It's better to have a little with the fear of the Lord than it is to have great treasure and turmoil with it. It's better to have a dish of vegetables. You're going to see in a moment that this is part of the contrast where he's saying, that's all you've got to eat. Nothing but a few vegetables. So you're essentially going hungry. I'm not saying anything here against the vegetarians. Better is a dish of vegetable where there's also love than there is a fatted calf and hatred to go with it. So again, he's talking about the accumulation of wealth, what it is to have little or what it is to have much. 
It's better to have little if you have the fear of the Lord, and it's better to have little if your life is surrounded by love. This Sunday, as we continue in Romans 13, we're going to be talking about that. Paul is going to talk extensively now about what it is to love each other, love one another, and that love, he says, is the fulfillment of the law. That loving your neighbor is the inspiration for doing the things that the law couldn't get you to do. So love is a very, very important element all the way through the Bible. And having love in your life not only brings contentment to your soul, not only brings you satisfaction, but perfect love casts out sins. So love as a concept, love as a thing, especially sacrificial love, the kind of love that only God truly has that kind of love in your life the wisdom of God that he has put into your life because he loves you the grace of God that is shining toward you because he loves you it's better to have that kind of love in this life and not much stuff than it is to sit down at the table and kill a fatted calf and all you have around you is hatred now we have seen in talking about fools and scoffers that Solomon has said repeatedly that those kind of people, once they are found out, end up hated. Once other people know that they've been cheated by the scoffers, once people know that they've been taken advantage of by somebody's wicked schemes, they end up hating that person. So even if their wicked schemes have resulted in them being able to kill the fatted calf, if they're hated by all the people that they've cheated out of it, and God is considering them an abomination, then what good is sitting down to a steak dinner? It's better to have little, all these verses are saying. It's better to have little and the fear of the Lord. It's better to just eat vegetables and have love in your life than it is to be evil, than it is to have turmoil in your life, than it is to have hatred in your life. Verse 18, we looked at last week, after we saw a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge commendable or acceptable, but the mouth of fools is always spouting folly. We also looked here at verse 18 that says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow-to-anger man pacifies the argument or the contention. When two people are at contention with each other, the man who is hot-headed, the one who gets angry quickly, is going to ramp everything up just as fast as he can. As soon as he has an opportunity to be offended, he's going to be offended. And it seems like we live among the perpetually offended these days. People who are just looking for something to be offended about And boy, they pounce on it instantly because they're hot-tempered, they're hot-headed. They can't wait to be upset about something, and then they just stir up strife. They just cause more trouble. But by contrast, if you're slow to anger, that brings peace. That pacifies the contention between people. I think I gave you a couple of examples last week. A psychologist will tell you if you're in an argument with somebody before you answer back, stop and count to 10. And the reason for that counting is not to show that you know how to count. The reason for that counting is because those 10 moments 
give you an opportunity to stop and think. And think, is this the best response? Should I really, now at this moment, should I now yell back at my mate? Should I scream at my coworker? Should I get angry at my kids? Should I, you have that moment to think, to slow down. And if you're slow in your anger, then you're able to pacify the fight, the contention that's going on between you. The way of a sluggard, I love that word sluggard, don't you? A sluggard, which means a lazy person, somebody who doesn't want to work. Somebody who doesn't want to be productive. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns. You're really only going to understand that by the contrast, which is, but the path of the upright is a highway. Okay, so think about in King Solomon's day, what was a highway? What was the king's highway? It was a road that had already been cleared of rocks. It had already been cleared of thorns or trees or whatever else, which meant that the going was pretty smooth and easy. So what he's saying is the upright are going to have an easier path toward God than the sluggard is because the sluggard is always going to be bound up in the thorns. If you're uh, running down the street and, and you're making good time and you're just running along fine and then you run into a hedge full of thorns, is that going to slow you down a little bit? Well, that's what Solomon's getting at. The way... And a few minutes ago, we heard about the way of the evil. The way that they act is an abomination before God. Here's that same phrase, the activity of their life, the way that they conduct themselves in this life. The way of the lazy, the sluggard, is like a hedge of thorns. They're never going to get forward. They're never going to move on. They're never going to accomplish anything. They're always being held back because of their own laziness. And the path of the upright who we can assume is somebody that's willing to do what's necessary. Get up and do the work. Get up before God and do the work that God has laid before them to do. Their path, the way that they walk through life, is more like a highway. So the contrast is between the difficulty of life or life going easier on you and the difference is, are you upright? Are you pursuing righteousness Or are you a sluggard, a lazy person, an evil person, a person who doesn't want to do the work? Verse 20 tells us, a wise son makes a father glad. And boy, don't I know that's true. (laughs) Really, that's all I got for that? Okay, fine. A wise son makes his father glad. But a foolish man despises his mother. I think what Solomon's really getting at here is that a wise son recognizes the value of the family, the family unit. They're not trying to break up or cause any dissension within the family. It's a foolish man who's going to despise his father or his mother. It's a foolish man who's going to upset his own household. It's a foolish man who's going to have contention with the very people who are feeding him and keeping him alive. That doesn't seem very smart. A wise son is going to make his father glad. Let me expand on that then. A wise son, if indeed the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, then if you have a wise son, you have a God-fearing son. 
You have somebody who is pursuing righteousness. That's the kind of son that Solomon is describing. And yes, that will indeed make a father very glad, very thankful. A foolish man despises his mother. Folly, says verse 21, folly, foolishness, is joy to him who lacks any sense. The man who's not smart to begin with, who's foolish in his ways, foolish in the things he does, when he is foolish, when he pursues folly, because he's not pursuing righteousness, he's not pursuing wisdom, he's sucking up folly like, like a, a cow grazing on grass, and that folly to him, that foolishness to him, is a joy to him. That's what satisfies him. That's what makes him happy in life. I won't name names, but I can think of people like that. I can think of people who just remain in their ignorance and they're never as happy as when they're stirring up strife and trouble and backbiting and causing difficulty. And Tom's laughing so hard he thought of somebody, I can tell. He was unique. (laughs) Folly is a joy to him who lacks any sense. By the way, this is, again, one of those phrases that you can kind of read forward or backward. If you see somebody who has no sense, you know that they enjoy foolishness. If you see somebody who's, who takes joy in foolishness, you know that they have no sense. Either way, it's true. But a man of understanding... A man with the wisdom of God, a man who is pursuing righteousness, that man, his way, his walk, the way he conducts himself is going to be straight. He's going to be going on that highway. He's going to be walking in a way where he's not hindered. He's not pulled back in any way. He's going to walk straight. He's going to stay in the way. That kind of language was picked up by Jesus later when he said, That narrow is the way, straight is the gate that leads to everlasting life. That concept, that idea, that imagery of a straight path leading to a straight gate runs all the way through the Bible. The life of righteousness, then, is to walk in that straight way, to stay on the path, which is why so often we hear about foolish people straying and going whatever way they want to go, and making their life more difficult, and not staying in the way. Instead, their way is all kinds of trouble and abomination. A man of understanding, a man of wisdom, a man who understands the fear of the Lord and the word of God and the value of God in his life, that man is going to walk straight. Notice again, the same way that we've been seeing in the New Testament, That if you have the Holy Spirit inside you, if you have been redeemed by Christ, if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, it's going to affect the way you walk. It's going to affect the way you behave. It's going to affect the way you live. Well, here it is in Solomon's words. He just says a man of understanding, somebody who has that God-given wisdom, he's going to walk straight. There's going to be a difference. Here's the point. There's going to be a difference between the way the God-fearing man walks his life out and the way that a cynic, a fool, an atheist walks his life out. We are going to be different than the world. We're going to behave differently than the world. We're going to look different than the world. And because we are men of understanding and women of understanding, we're going to walk in a different way than the world. We're going to walk straight. 
Verse 22, bit of a left turn. Without consultation, plans are frustrated. What Solomon's saying is, it's good to have counselors around you. The second half of that verse says it, with many counselors, those plans succeed. Any man, especially somebody who's a king like Solomon is, anybody who's trying to run any kind of organization, any kind of business, knows that if he acts completely unilaterally, if he says, I'm the boss and I'm the only boss, and what I say goes, and whatever I decide, that's the way we're going, well, then invariably his plans are going to get frustrated because no one person can always know what's best in every circumstance for everybody he's dealing with. So it's necessary to have wise counsel. It's necessary to have people around you who know what they're talking about. I think that's also the reason that Paul, in talking about leadership within the church, said that there were going to be men who had good reputations, men who were full of the spirit, men who were going to be around the elders, the leaders, the pastors. There was going to be a plurality of leadership so that there is counsel so that no one man can say, well, now the church is going to go the way I want it, no other way. And that's what Tom and I lived with out in Los Angeles for a while. A, a cult of personality church where one man made every decision. And even if the decisions were wrong or bad, there was no recourse. There was no way to get back to him and say, that's not right. But there are men here at GCA who know they have the right and the responsibility if I go too far off, they have the right, the authority, and the expectation that they're going to come to me and say, Jim, let's not do it that way. One of the things that I appreciate about the men of GCA is that they do. We get together. We talk about it. Is this what's right for the church? Is this what's good for the church going forward? And there's a division of responsibility, and it doesn't all land on one person. Well, that's kind of what Solomon is getting at. If there's no consultation, if you're a one-man show, well, then your plans are going to be frustrated. But with many counselors, with this plurality of input, then plans are going to succeed by the way, that also tells us as individuals that we have to remember that other people might know stuff we don't. It's very frustrating to be around somebody who's a know-it-all. It's very difficult to be around somebody who's fully confident that their way is the only correct way. And so it is necessary to have counselors, but it's also necessary to be humble enough to recognize that you don't know everything and that counselors may be telling you, may be reproving you, may be instructing you, may be telling you the, the wiser way to go. Look at verse 33 for a moment. The second half of verse 33, the very end of chapter 15 says, before honor comes humility. Humility is a key ingredient in these things that Solomon is writing. If you are humble, if you have genuine humility, then you know that your ideas, your plans, your intentions are not the important ones. You recognize that there's value to other people and their ideas and their thoughts. And you're willing to accept reproof. You're willing to accept instruction when it comes your way. 
When people tell you the better, wiser, more godly way to do things, you're going to not be foolish and cast it off and and hate the person who brings it. You're going to accept instruction, and that requires humility. That requires recognizing that it's not really all about you. And I didn't mean to look right at you when I said that, Conrad. You just happened to be there, and I was looking that way. Verse 23. A man has joy in an apt answer or an appropriate answer. We did look at this briefly last week. In other words, if you come to somebody with a question, if you're looking for advice, if you're looking for counsel, and somebody gives you an appropriate answer, a wise answer, if they answer with capability, aptitude, if they answer that way, then that brings joy to you. What a good thing. I I wasn't sure what I was going to do here. I went to somebody who had wisdom, and I said to them, what do you think? And they gave me a really good solution, a really good answer. Well, Solomon is saying that that's a great joy. And so you should go looking for counselors. You should be listening to other people's input, because when you get the good input, when you get the good feedback and the apt answer, that's going to bring you joy. It's going to answer the the conundrums, the questions, the problems that you had. And how delightful is a timely word, a word in season, a word that comes at the appropriate moment. Somebody who tells you what you needed to know right then. That either relieves your concern or relieves your worry or gives you a path forward or makes something clear to you that wasn't clear to you before. That's a great joy when that happens. It's delightful when somebody brings a timely word. Go down to verse 28 for just a moment. It says, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. A moment ago, we read that a man has joy when he receives an appropriate answer. So if you go to somebody with some wisdom, you're asking a question, you're looking for some counsel from somebody... A wise man is not going to immediately spout off. A wise man's going to think about it. Because apt answers don't just happen. Apt answers don't just fall out of trees. An apt answer, an appropriate answer, a bit of wisdom, comes from actually thinking about it. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. What would the right answer be? What would the appropriate answer be? And what would be the answer that would lift this person up and help them progress in their life and give them reassurance and give them greater wisdom and even steer them toward godliness and righteousness? That would be a good answer. And it takes time to think about that. So a righteous man is going to ponder how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked just spouts off evil things. The mouth of the wicked, if you go to somebody who's wicked in their heart and you ask them for advice, you ask them for counsel, they're going to tell you all kinds of crazy things because they don't stop to think about it. They don't stop to to think about whether or not this is an appropriate answer. They're just interested in answering. Here, I'll put it this way. Active listening. I used to teach uh, when I was working at the studio over in Brentwood they were encouraging different managers to teach classes 
that had to do with uh, group dynamics. And so since I was running the studio over there, I was a very active listener because everything I did had to do with sound and being able to listen to things. And so I taught a couple of week class on what I called active listening. And I made this statement, and when I made it, everybody in the room agreed because everybody has encountered this before. I said, active listening is paying attention to what the other person is actually saying and listening in a way where you're not constructing your answer in your head. You're listening to what the other person is saying so that once you comprehend what they have said, you can then think about how to give them a reasonable answer. Most people, unfortunately, when they are listening, are only listening to decide what they're going to say next. And as soon as you're done talking, oftentimes before you have finished your sentence, they jump in with the assumption that they know what the end of the sentence is. They jump in with the assumption they know what you're talking about. And they can't wait to get in there and just tell you what they think. Everybody in the room was nodding at me as I was explaining that. Well, that's the difference between intelligent, righteous thinking that listens to somebody and understand their request, understand their problem, understand what they are saying to you, and then ponder it for a moment. Take the time to think it through and then give them an appropriate and apt answer because the foolish person is just going to answer immediately. He's just going to spout off. He's just going to say whatever he wants to say because that's what's in his heart. What's in his heart is me, more me. You need to hear what I think. Your problems are not important. (laughs) Your concerns are not our chief concern here. What's really important is that you appreciate more of me, and I've got more stuff to say. It was true in Solomon's day. It's true today. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer But the mouth of the wicked just pours out evil things. So verse 23 is where we were. A man has joy in an apt or appropriate answer. And how delightful is a timely word. The path of life. This is our last verse for the night. Seems like a good place to end. The path of life leads upward for the wise. And you can understand that statement In the contrast, which is that he may keep away from Sheol below. So the path of life for the wise person is leading toward heaven. It's leading upward. The path of the righteous, somebody who's accumulating the knowledge of this life, the understanding of God and his word The fear of the Lord that is appropriate in this lifetime leads upward or it causes him to keep away from Sheol, the grave, death, which is below. So in Solomon's construction here, downward is the grave, upward is heaven, is life, is godliness, is everything that the Bible describes for the righteous to receive. So... I think that's a good place to end. The path of life leads upward for the wise that he may keep away from Sheol below. That really is kind of the summation of the whole Bible. That as you 
read God's word that is leading you toward higher, better, eternal, grander things. And it is wise, that is the wisdom that comes from the Bible, is that it teaches you the fear of the Lord and it lifts you up toward higher things, higher goals, higher purposes in life. And that keeps you away from the lower things, Sheol, death, destruction. So I started by saying, you know, Solomon's words are as relevant and helpful today as they were when he wrote them 3,000 years ago. As you read those tonight, didn't you get a lot out of that in terms of just, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I should live that way. (laughs) Yes, that makes sense. I should be careful in how I talk and conduct myself and deal with other people. And yeah, it makes sense to have counselors and that other people know stuff that I don't know. And it's just really, really sensible, very rational kind of suggestions and explanations that Solomon is giving us. And uh, I'm really, really glad that those are included in the word of God because the word of God is both higher than us and wiser than us and in many ways incomprehensible to us. But then it's also really practical and it meets us right down here where we live. And if it's the very word of God, it would be like that. And indeed, it turns out it is. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.